Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's where, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. 
To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. Find us on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Welcome to Close Wars, the podcast that is feeling really fired up about capitalism today. Well, I mean, like every day, but right now, more than ever. I'm your host, Amanda. If you haven't guessed by now, most of the time, I'm totally winging it, meaning, yes, each of these episodes takes hours upon hours to make, I would say, about 20 hours per episode. Yeah, it really takes that long. (laughs) But despite all of that research, writing, and recording, I'm often just sort of talking to interesting, smart people and kind of seeing where the episode takes me. So I'm less about creating themes in advance and more about just letting them appear on their own. And this episode is no exception to that. If I were going to try to convey the theme of this episode in one sentence, it would be many, perhaps most companies, have no value for the lives of their workers. I mean, that's kind of an extremely black and white, really intense summary. But as you'll see as we move through this episode, that's the case in a lot of situations. So what's in this episode? Well, as always, a lot. I'm going to talk a bit about a new study by the Brookings Institute into retail workers and the pandemic. Then we'll hear the second half of my conversation with Gabriella, where we'll be giving an update on the pay-up movement and then talk about how Gabriella, as a new fashion school graduate, sees she and her peers changing the industry as we know it. It's not all doom and gloom. Lastly, we'll have a little convo with Kenzie about working at Costco. It turns out working at Costco is pretty good, and I can verify that because I've heard all the details from her. And that raises the question for me. Why can't everyone else treat their workers like that? I still don't have an answer to that, but perhaps you will after hearing all of this. But first, let's thank the newest Patreon supporters. Amy Rafferty lives in Whistler, Canada, and she's the owner of The Velvet Underground, a vintage store, cafe, and community dedicated to promoting self-expression through fashion, art, and music, whilst inspiring a more sustainable lifestyle. I totally got that description from her website, obviously, (laughs) but it's great, right? It sounds like a place I want to go right now. Amy posted an awesome video on Instagram a few weeks ago telling everyone that they should listen to Clothes Horse, and I'm not kidding, it made me cry. It was so moving. I watched it like 10 times. Thank you so much for all of your support, Amy. Iris Aguilar lives in Monterey, Mexico, and I think she's our first scientist listener, or at least the first scientist listener that I'm aware of. If there are more of you scientists out there listening, please hit me up. 
She studied biotech engineering and then did a master's in sustainable water use. And why do I know all of this? I'm not stalking her like I normally do all of you patrons. <laughs> she and I have actually been corresponding for a while. She's been sending me all kinds of amazing information that I promise I'm using in an upcoming episode. It's just there's been so much going on. And I also just want to add that Iris has a very handsome gray cat that has nothing to do with anything, but, you know, as you know, I always have to call out the pets of our patrons because I'm a crazy animal person and I get excited when other animal people support the pod. Anyway, I feel as if I'm doing a really good job on the scientific side of my explanations of things if Iris feels compelled to support the podcast. So thank you so much for your support, Iris. As always, it feels super awkward to ask you to support my podcast while everything else is terrible. But if you have the means and you're interested, you can find more details at patreon.com slash podcast. And of course, I'll include that link in the show notes. Remember, if you become a patron this month, no matter what tier you choose, you'll also receive an Anti-Brunch Society pin and membership card. And I actually, I just sent out a huge batch of pins on Saturday, the day after Christmas. We spent a sub- substantial portion of Christmas afternoon watching reruns of The Price is Right and packing all of these up. Some people will get theirs mailed this week. I'm waiting for some more envelopes. I did a very bad job of taking envelope inventory. If you can't support the pod via Patreon, that's totally okay. If you still really want to support Close Horse, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and I'll also send you a pin because you know what? The reviews and ratings are what are going to get Close Horse on the charts and that's going to bring in new listeners and that is huge. We don't have any hotline calls today, which is kind of good because there's so much other stuff I want to cover today, but we do have a letter from previous guest and owner of Salt Hats, Katie. You might remember, if you didn't drink too much eggnog this weekend, that in our last episode, Kyle called in to talk about, quote, gentleman style. Katie presents a good counterpoint in her letter. Hey, Amanda, Katie here. I should call the hotline, but my house is super loud. I hear you on that. I had to pause the podcast just now to give my perspective as someone who works in a particularly old-timey menswear industry, hats. While I fully understand what you're saying about the gentleman as a marketing story, I think there's a lot more facets to consider. I as well had the view of suiting slash dressing up as being a class thing, but that's because I was raised in a white rural area. Living in Detroit for 20 years has fully changed my mind. My customers at the hat store are largely black and working class. A huge percentage are auto factory workers, two to four generations in, construction workers, and municipal workers. For them, suiting up and putting together an outfit is an immense source of pride, whether they're going out to a club or to church. They have inherited ideas about buying for quality, longevity, and classic style. I'm routinely repairing and reblocking hats that were purchased from our store anywhere from 10 to 100 years ago. People can check out at Harry the Hatter Detroit on Instagram to see some of my favorite customers and their incredible outfits. I also work with colleagues in the city that are other small gentlemen's clothing businesses, and on this level, there is generally a ton of respect and support, and I say this as a heavily tattooed femme that wears rainbow hats and looks like I'm in a goth funk band. (laughs) Also, I know this isn't the kind of hat that Katie's referring to, but the first time I read this, I pictured it was going to be one of those, like, big Dr. Seuss, like, raver hats from the 90s in rainbow. (laughs) Please don't wear that. 
But if you want to, that's fine too. (laughs) There's this strong understanding that the working person, not all gentlemen are male, has the right to a look that suits them and makes them feel as though they're dressed to face the streets. I can see a noticeable change in demeanor when a person puts on a hat that will complete their look. They look at themselves in the mirror with so much admiration. And isn't that what it's all about? I digress, but I just needed to defend my fellow gentlemen, gentle people, and say that there's a large faction of us that are not rich white folks at the country club. We dress way more stylishly than they do anyway. Eternally devoted to the close horse cause, Katie. So Katie calls out a type of gentleman style that I think that Kyle and I, as coastal city dwellers, totally forgot about. I know that at least on my end, I was totally thinking of the fake gentleman dressing white dudes that find themselves hanging out in the Ace Hotel lobby all the time. If you've ever been to an Ace Hotel lobby, you know of which I speak. I've been to Ace Hotel lobbies all across this country for work. And uh, they're they're there. They're at all of them. (laughs) It's a specific sort of LA, Portland, NYC type of dude. I'm guessing Kyle, because I he's from New York, is is thinking the same thing. I think my major issue with gentlemanly dressing is this idea that society has lost this level of alleged civility since men stopped wearing suits regularly. And these dudes hanging out at the Ace Hotel are known to extrapolate on that idea. It sounds insane to even say that out loud, right? <laughs> but that's a huge school of thought. And those dudes are churning out tons of really depressing and, well, infuriating think pieces about that. And those articles and the things these dudes say, they really, at their core, reek of classism, sexism, and racism. And in my rage about all of that, which, as I mentioned, I had to kind of mire my way through for one of my jobs, I totally forgot the culture that Katie is talking about, which is incredibly short-sighted and self-centered of me. I also just want to reiterate one of my biggest beliefs. Style, as in what we wear, has this magical power to totally change how you feel about yourself, how your day is going to go, and really who you are going to be on that day. So everyone should wear the clothes that make them feel like the best versions of themselves, whether that's a suit, a dress, some hot dog print leggings, or a hamburger costume. But please, take good care of your clothes. Make them last. If you have your own view to share on gentleman style or really anything else that we have discussed or will discuss, I mean, for example, just putting this out there, maybe you have a good beanie baby story. I'm looking at you, Maggie Bond. Please reach out to me via email at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com, DM via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast, or, and this is the best way, call the Close Horse Hotline, 717-925-7417. Years and years ago, when I was a department manager in a clothing store, my friend Alana said to me regarding our district manager, Mitch, which Mitch is like the most district manager name ever. Am I right? She said, if Mitch found out that he had to give up his free corporate card lunches in exchange for keeping you on the team, he would fire you immediately without any guilt. And I was kind of shaken up by that, even if that was true, because I and everybody else I worked with We worked long hours, well past 40, because we were salaried and we were definitely being exploited, you know, that salary position, which I've talked about in the past. And we sacrificed our health, our free time, and our relationships all in the name of doing a good job. Like, how could we 
people who were so invested in this job and worked so hard for this company, how could we be so disposable? Five years ago, Dustin and I hitched up our cats and all of our possessions and moved to Portland, Oregon, so I could work for a startup there. There was a catch to this job that in the beginning didn't seem like a big deal, but as you will see, turned into a very big deal. The job didn't offer health insurance, but I was passionate about the cause and the potential that this company had, so I figured it would be okay to have ACA insurance for a while. And the CEO had told me that they were working on getting us insurance soon. Well, that never happened. And after Trump became president and began chipping away at the Affordable Care Act, health insurance coverage for just Dylan and me, nothing for Justin, had grown from $500 a month to $1,000 a month. And at the same time, there was progressively less coverage. Like, for example, the final year that we had this ACA coverage, Dylan's policy wouldn't cover trips to the ER, and mine wouldn't cover trips to the urgent care. But they were literally the best and most expensive policies that I could get on the exchange. About a year or so later, Dylan had a major illness that resulted in multiple trips to the emergency room, which were not covered by their insurance, and three long hospitalizations. And the resulting bill was tens of thousands of dollars, (laughs) many thousands of dollars. When I reached out to the CEO, my boss again, and was like, listen, can we discuss the possibility of health insurance again? Because an employer subsidized plan would have way better coverage options and I might not be staring down bankruptcy right now. Okay, that's not actually how I phrased it. I said it in a much nicer way. Basically, I just wanted to know, what can I do as one of the leaders in the company to get everyone health insurance so no one else has to face these problems and can care for themselves? Because that's an important thing to mention. Everyone in my office was underpaid for the industry, myself included, and most could not afford health insurance. Like I actually, being in a more leadership role, was making enough money to afford this exorbitantly expensive health insurance. Most of my coworkers were trying to treat themselves for illnesses using things that they bought at Whole Foods. And this is no joke. I mean, people were sick all the time. It just, it was not good. It was one of those things that ate away at me and my sort of commitment to this job every day, among other things. My boss responded to that email within an hour with a very terse response that said, while I'm sympathetic to your situation, My number one priority is achieving profitability for this company. In other words, profit over people. Never mind the fact that everyone in the office was working seven days a week, four years on end to help that company succeed because they believed in it and they believed that it could change things. We weren't asking for a million dollars. We were asking for health insurance. If you've been listening to Close Horse since the very beginning, then you know I lost my buying job with a big retailer in April. Now, as I discussed in the last episode with Gabriella, I was officially laid off right before the end of a fiscal quarter, a week earlier than all of the other layoffs for the company because my boss went on vacation. And it was all very messy, partially because of the pandemic, partially because my boss was out of office, and partially because, well, no one really cared what happened to me. They were too nervous about their own futures, like would they have a job in another month, to really fret about mine, 
which is completely understandable. What a terrible time to have to lay someone off knowing that you could be next. My boss gave me the bad news over the phone, and then they never gave her any documentation to send to me via email. I didn't know she went on vacation, and since my company didn't have an HR department, I didn't know what was going on with any severance or the end of my health insurance or anything. To make matters worse, the mail was already a disaster. Like, what's happening right now with everybody's Christmas packages was happening this summer, too. We were getting mail about once a week, and everything was taking weeks upon weeks to get to us, even if it came from across town. So by the time I received a letter from my health insurance provider telling me that my insurance was ending in five days, it was 10 days after it ended. And I still hadn't received any information about COBRA, which I don't know if this is the case for most COBRA plans, but this company was very male focused. Like they have a website, but it's not very great. Like you have to kind of do everything via paper. So effectively at that point, by the time I got that letter, I had no insurance and there was no insurance in sight. I also had already tried to apply for ACA, but I was going through a whole thing there where they wanted me to apply for Medicaid and be rejected. It's a thing that's happening here in Pennsylvania where they actually make you apply twice and be rejected and then you can get ACA. It took like a month and a half when all was said and done. Of course, in that window, when I have no healthcare coverage and I'm not sure what it's going to be, I got terrible, awful food poisoning. Like I threw up for days, I had a raging high fever, and I was in agony. For just a moment, I wondered if I was actually just like vomiting out all this like incredible rage and sense of betrayal over finding out that I was laid off from my job, not because the company was about to go under if they had to continue to pay my salary, but because the company was trying to maintain profits as sales were down. Because at the time I was sick, I also found myself bombarded. I was laying in bed, looking at my phone, a million articles about how the company had posted a surprise $34 million profit. It was just like a dagger in my chest. Yes, I know we're talking about a job here, but you know, if you're a hard worker and you're really passionate about what you do, these kinds of things can feel like a personal betrayal, right? So the company had posted a $34 million profit, but meanwhile, they had cut off my insurance, a tiny expenditure for them, but a massive amount of money for me, all so that they could turn that surprise profit. Because that's the thing. And we can talk about this with any, any retailer that's out there right now, any company really. If you're selling stuff and the pandemic affects your sales, whether you have stores closed or people just aren't buying as much stuff, or maybe your sales weren't that great to begin with, you have to cut costs in order to maintain that profit that you deliver to shareholders. Like ultimately, shareholders care less about your annual sales and more about the profit margin that you're delivering. So in order to maintain profit on less sales, what do you do? Well, there are two major major things you can do. One is you can cut your overall budget. So that would be like rent, employees, employee benefits, other operating costs, And that will allow you to deliver more profit on lower sales. Or you can squeeze factories for lower cost on the products you're selling. So even though you'll sell less products, you'll make more profit off of each one. And that can also allow you to deliver higher profits. That's something important to keep in mind when we get to the pay up section. It kind of helps you understand why these companies aren't paying for their orders and asking for discounts and everything else, which we'll get to. So... I'm in bed. I'm really, really sick. 
And I, I'm just distraught that I lost my job because the company went to deliver more profit, which I will say is very naive of me because I have worked in this industry for a long time, but I have a very deep understanding of how it works. Right. But you know, it still hurts. It devalued all the hard work that I had done for them, all the nights and weekends that I worked just so that business could succeed. I'm not the owner of that business, and apparently I'm highly disposable. And for a moment, I thought maybe that like ugly, rancid rage that was inside of me was just expelling itself for me in the form of vomit and fever. But I think it was food poisoning. <laughs> Dustin was finally like, hey, I kind of think maybe you need to go to the ER or the urgent care or something. He reminded me of the time a few years ago when I'd had mono and I was vomiting like this. I couldn't keep anything down. I had a really high fever. And by the time we got to the ER, the doctor said that my kidneys were starting to shut down. I mean, I was fine. Obviously, I'm here right now. We had gotten there just in the nick of time and I was able to get all kinds of treatment that put me back together again. And Dustin was concerned that maybe we were looking at a repeat situation here. And I was just like, no, I don't have health insurance. My job cut it off five days after I was let go. And since we know I'm not getting another job anytime soon, we can't have medical debt from going to the hospital for food poisoning. Basically, I was laying there thinking, either I can die or bankrupt my family. And well, I guess I just have to run the risk of dying here. Which, yeah, I mean, to say it's super sad is an understatement. But it's something that's happening all the time, throughout our country and around the world. Many people don't get health insurance at their jobs. And as I've mentioned, ACA coverage is expensive and not that great. But what about garment workers overseas? They can't afford food, much less healthcare right now. And we'll talk about that more later with Gabriella. I mean, I guess what this is turning into an argument for is Medicare for all, but that's not the real point of this whole series of illustrations, I promise. So I lay in bed, making the choice to risk death versus, you know, getting treatment and potentially destroying my family's financial future, all because I ate some turkey bacon that was a bit past its prime. As I'm laying there and I'm having to go through this mental process, which, I mean, I was already just such a mess emotionally from everything that's happened this year and being surrounded by death all the time and now wondering if I wasn't going to survive this solely because I ate turkey bacon and lost my job. I realized that I had to fight for everyone, that no one should have to choose between possible death or bankruptcy, that no one should ever have to choose between their life and their family's future, that no one should have to live in so much fear of losing it all simply because they were a worker and not a CEO. It was my job to fight the status quo of profits over people. And it lit the fire to work harder and harder on close horse and to try to reach more of you. Somewhere along the line, we all decided, all of us, that we would no longer expect any level of social responsibility from companies and that it was okay because they were in the business of making profits, not caring for the people who worked for them. We all agreed that workers were disposable, that they could be replaced by someone else that they didn't like what was going on, that they had no right to expect fair treatment and pay. Well, guess what? I'm not okay with that. I'm not okay with this idea that companies are just there to make money and they don't need to be responsible for anything else. I think it's 
totally unacceptable. If these companies rely on us to buy things from them, then we should be able to trust them to care for their employees in an ethical, compassionate way. Or they don't get to exist anymore. It's a non-negotiable for me. I get that we're all inured to this idea of evil, heartless corporate overlords, but do we have to continue to support them? No, we do not. And I guess I'm saying that in 2021, I'm going to be going harder against these companies and their complete disregard for both our planet and its people. And yes, before I continue, because I know someone's going to message me about this, now that I no longer have a temperature of 103 and I can keep food down, I realized that I could have retroactively paid for my Cobra and then had coverage for that trip to the ER or urgent care, but I wasn't in my right mind. It was my first time having to figure out Cobra. And, you know, who would know this stuff? And I also just want to add that my Cobra info didn't arrive for several more weeks. It was like basically, I would say, four to six weeks after I lost my job. Okay, well, that's the end of that story, but it's a great segue into what I'm going to talk about next. This week I read and shared on Instagram a report from the Brookings Institute, which you're probably asking yourself, what is the Brookings Institute? According to their website, it is a nonprofit public policy organization based in Washington, D.C. Their mission is to conduct in-depth research that leads to new ideas for solving problems facing society at the local, national, and global level. I mean, obviously, I'm way into all of that. So I'm a regular reader of their blog. And it, it frequently touches on sort of that intersection between economic issues and quality of life for different p- groups of people. This particular report slash article that I'm going to talk about was titled, it's a doozy, Amazon and Walmart have raked in billions in additional profits during the pandemic and shared almost none of it with their workers. Together, Amazon and Walmart earned an extra $10.7 billion over last year, as in over 2019, the normal nice year, over those profits. So they're coming out way ahead in 2020. It's a 56% increase over the previous year, which when you work in retail is like, OMG, we're killing it. And this exceptional growth for them is all due to the pandemic, basically, especially for Amazon. Despite this enormous surge in sales, the Brookings Institute ranked Amazon and Walmart among the least generous of the 13 large retail and grocery companies studied in the report. The two companies could have quadrupled their extra COVID-19 compensation that they gave to the workers through the last quarter and still earned more profit than the previous year. But as I'm sure you're guessing, they did not do that. Now, both of these retailers, Amazon and Walmart, along with a lot of other ones out there, have promised hazard pay for their employees. Let's be honest, those employees are putting their lives on the line every day that they go to work. So how does that hazard pay actualize? Well, through the end of the year, The Brookings Institute calculated that frontline Walmart associates earning starting wages and working 40 hours per week will earn the equivalent of, are you ready, an extra 71 cents pre-tax for every hour they worked since the start of the pandemic. In comparison, 
the wealth of the three Walton siblings, the heirs to the Walmart fortune, has risen $6.2 million per hour, even while they sleep. Meanwhile, just to reiterate, the people working in the stores, on the front lines, putting their lives at risk, are making an additional 71 cents per hour when they're at work. Frontline Amazon workers will earn the equivalent of an extra 99 cents per hour, once again, pre-tax, for each hour worked over the pandemic. Meanwhile, Jeff Bezos' wealth has risen $11.5 million each hour of the pandemic. So are all retail workers getting the shaft here? Well, some companies are being a lot more generous. And I don't even, you know what? I don't want to use the term generous because what I think they're being is just, this isn't a gift that they're giving their workers. They're seeing that they're putting their lives at risk. Best Buy gave employees a raise of $3.20 per hour. Target, Home Depot, and Costco all gave at least $2 per hour, and that's three times Walmart and twice Amazon. But lest you think Amazon and Walmart were the stingiest, oh, we have some much stingier employers out there. Walgreens, CVS, Albertsons, and Kroger, Kroger is a massive nationwide grocery chain, they came in well below Amazon and Walmart, with Walgreens coming in at the very bottom with a big fat raise of 19 cents. Meanwhile, Amazon and Walmart have been lavishing employees with praise and gratitude and television commercials and with signs in their stores and in their parking lots, essentially using their workers as a marketing story, like a feel-good marketing story, while not actually caring about protecting them at all. It's like greenwashing, but it needs a different name, I guess. If you have a name, a suggestion, hit me up. Okay, so they're being shitty, but like tooting the horn of how great they are constantly. Okay, what about Costco? So like I said, Costco gave everybody about $2, a little bit more. No one knew about Costco's raises until someone from the Brookings Institute actually reached out to the employees. The, the company has quietly spent $14 million of its pandemic profits each week to compensate its workers on top of already leading the industry with starting wages of, on average, $15 per hour. Costco's generosity, once again, is a generosity. That's just doing the right thing. It resulted in an even balance between additional profits and additional worker pay, meaning that Costco still made record profits this year while also paying its employees a record amount. Later in this episode, we're going to talk about Costco more with Kenzie, an employee, and she has really great things to say. Can't wait for you to hear that. Costco, to me, shows a company that can still make a lot of money while caring for its employees. It proves that profits don't have to be placed ahead of people. They can coexist and fuel one another. I think I mentioned this a few weeks back. But I participated in a pitchathon for women and femme-led startups, and I heard a pitch from one group that was like, "Why would you ever want to invest your money in a company that would lay off workers during a pandemic just to keep hitting a certain level of profitability?" And that has stuck with me since. 
Like, why would you buy something from a company that laid off workers and cut off their health insurance during a pandemic just so they could post $34 million in profit for that quarter? Or why would you buy from a company that refuses to hashtag pay up for the orders it canceled in the spring? In fact, the pay up situation is worse than ever as of December, and I'll be detailing that more in my conversation with Gabriella. I mean, why would you give a dime to a company that is pushing workers into starvation and suicide? I've been reading a lot about psychic numbing, a phenomenon that occurs when you feel powerless to help others because the problem is just too big. Like you feel like you personally can't make an an impact. I know that feeling. I know you do too. And it's easy to feel that way when you hear about companies underpaying and undervaluing workers, about garment workers forced into starvation, about Walmart giving new hires paperwork, about signing up for food stamps in their orientation. That really happens. It's easy to feel like, what can I do? But we can't feel that way. We have to push through it. Because guess what? We do have the power. We have the power of our wallets, the power of our voices, the power of our determination. We can stop giving money to assholes. That's step one. We can push our elected officials for laws and policy changes. That's another big one. And we can call out these companies on social media and shame them, if it's possible, into doing better. With some it is, with some it's not. So before I start the conversation with Gabriella, I want to talk about pay up just a little bit more. I said in the recorded conversation, which we'll hear momentarily, that there were only 12 companies that hadn't paid up yet, but I was actually wrong. I was looking at a wrong list. It's a few more. And for the first time, I'm going to actually give you the full list right here on the podcast, and I'll share it again on social media. Here are the companies that have made no commitment to pay in full for orders completed and in production as the pandemic began. American Eagle Outfitters, which is American Eagle and Aerie. We're going to talk about them more later because they're doing some other shady stuff right now. Arcadia, which is Topshop. Balmon, bestseller. Camayu. Edinburgh Woolen Mill, which is Bon Marsh and Peacocks. Those are UK brands. Esprit, JCPenney, Kohl's. Lee and Fung Global Brands Group, I had to look this up. They own a ton of companies, like a ton of brands, including Calvin Klein, Fry, and All Saints. Matalon, Mothercare, Oscar de la Renta, Ross Stores, which we'll talk about more later as well. Schultz Fashion, which is a retailer called Coliseum. Sears, The Children's Place. TJX, which is the parent company for TJ Maxx, Marshalls, and Home Goods. And I think maybe Sierra Trading Post. And then URBN Inc., which is Urban Outfitters, Anthropology, Free People, Terrain, Beholden, and Newly. And then last, Walmart, which operates as ASDA in, in Europe and in the UK. It's a long list, especially when you start to break down the brands that live under those umbrellas. It's, it's a lot, right? If you have already forgotten that list, which I can't blame you because it's long. There's also a permanent link on the Close Horse Instagram profile that will take you to this list at any time. And it's a list that's, that's maintained by the Workers' Rights Consortium, who has been just driving, driving the activism around getting these brands to pay up. 
Okay, well, let's get into the conversation with Gabriella, where we'll be starting with pay up and its implications. When Gabriella and I were preparing for this episode, she was like, we should talk about pay up again because I haven't talked about it for a while. Uh, there's still lots of terrible stuff going on. Like I was just looking at all the December updates. Um, the Clean Clothes campaign has a live blog where they literally update with new reporting from all around the world almost every day. And uh, what I can tell you is that if you think pay up is over, it's definitely not. It's like worse than ever. So there are still about a dozen companies. And when I say companies, I mean like big corporations that might have multiple brands or chains under their umbrella. So it's way more brands than you think are involved, way more than 12, that haven't paid up at all for orders that they canceled in the spring. Now, there are plenty of companies that have given in to public pressure and agreed to pay, but that's not exactly true either. Some have said, okay, listen, we will pay for all of our future orders no matter what, but we will not pay for the orders that we canceled. Uh, they're also asking for extreme discounts. I read anywhere from 20% to 70%, which when we talk about fast fashion, it's kind of scary, right? Because like, I mean, I worked somewhere where we were buying dresses for $8, okay? And that included shipping via air. So there were really $6 was getting paid for every to everyone for the fabric and everything oh, else, right? Shipping via air. Like, I know, like, I know. Like in I know. school, I really thought every, like most of it was still being shipped in cargo containers, not just, uh, but you made me realize that, nope, they flipped. It's now more by planes. And also like a cargo container falls like into the ocean, like once every hour, like not just from fashion, uh, from everything that they're shipping. That's disturbing. <laughs> that is so disturbing. I mean, I've definitely over the years had orders that, uh, you know, experienced some sort of great calamity. Like I had a whole bunch of shoes that were coming and the boat sank. So the there's whole boat. Probably t- the whole boat. So, t- I mean, that's a ton of containers, right? Or like sometimes, um, these cargo containers after they arrive at the port, they'll go on a train. I've ha- I've experienced train derailments. Once again, all these, all this stuff lost. But that's still better for the environment than like the plane stuff. Like that's infuriating. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think it's important to say that now more than ever, everything is coming on a plane because everybody is like, and we'll get to this in a minute, is like ordering at the last minute. So a survey of workers in nine countries that are predominant parts of the garment industry indicated that even if those workers still had a job, which they did not all have still have a job, their income had dropped by 20%. And we're talking 20% less for people who are already making poverty wages. So even if retailers are paying, they're squeezing factories on cost and demanding super fast turnaround because they don't want to risk ordering too much product or the wrong product. So they're waiting until the last minute. You know, and you know, all they're really ordering right now is sweatpants anyway. So, <laughs> and why, if they haven't been paid, like, d- don't keep making stuff for them? Like, I, it's just, and don't keep ordering too much. Like, they're like, oh, we don't want to order too much now. It's like, you didn't care before when you were just going to throw it away or burn it. Yeah. I mean, I was reading about that because it's like, yeah, wouldn't you, if, if you're, 
number one client wasn't paying you, you'd be like, well, guess what? I can't work for you anymore. This is like out of control, right? But basically what I was reading is there the balance of power is just so gone. There's no balance whatsoever that the retailers hold all the power. And so they can demand anything they want because literally the factories cannot stay afloat without them. So they have to accept these terrible terms. So one is that there's little to no flexibility on delivery dates. So, you know, the brands, the retailers, they want the stuff so fast so that they can, like, I mean, and I've worked places like this where you're literally placing the full production order four to six weeks before delivery, you know, you're going to need a week for it to go, you know, fly here and come through customs, maybe two weeks, doesn't leave very much time for, you know, running the fabric, cutting, sewing, packing. I mean, it's, there's just no time, right? And I've been hearing from a lot of my friends, the few of my friends who still have their jobs and buying that they're ordering stuff in month now. So they might say, okay, it's, it's December 1st. We're going to order everything for the third week of December. Like it's really crazy so right now. It's gotten even faster. Like you made me mm-hmm. realize that the economic crisis of 2008 is what really turbocharged fast fashion. And now with this, they're just using it as a way to make it even worse. And it's just got to stop. I agree. I mean, we're now we're like at mega fast fashion. And so they're pushing the vendors and the factory owners so hard on timeline that they can't afford to socially distance people in the factory and have less people in the factory because they need all hands on deck to get this sewn as fast as possible. So this work this puts workers at risk for, you know, contracting COVID because they can't stagger shifts or, you know, space them further apart or, you know, make people who have a fever go home. It's it's just not feasible. And it's sort of like, yeah, you're afraid to come to work because you might get exposed to COVID. But then again, you also need to get paid. And you're not mad at the other people who come to work when they might have COVID. Because once again, if you don't all work, then none of you are going to get paid. Do you know what I mean? It's like- <laughs> You can't miss work because they didn't pay you from when everything shut down. They they just, the, they didn't pay the factory, so the factory didn't pay you. Right. And you're already getting paid so little for this project because the retailer has squeezed the factory so much. You know, that trickles down to the workers. The workers are kind of like, we are all going to come to work no matter how frightened or unwell we are because if we miss this deadline, they're going to take a discount for it being late or cancel the order and then we're going to get even less pay. I mean, there's just – there's no balance of power here, right? There's no like sense of justice, I guess I would say. And so also, if there is a situation in which a worker – test positive for COVID, you know, the standard procedure would be to, okay, we got to close down for a few hours a day and deep clean the whole place. Well, that can't happen because they'll miss their deadline. Like that's how tight the turnaround is. So also this squeezing on the pricing forces the factories and workers, like I said, to accept smaller payment. But here's the even worse part of it. It's often on longer terms. So typically unless you have a really special situation going on with your supply chain, everything is net 30 terms. That means that when you, the factory, ship off the product, the recipient, i.e. the retailer, has 30 days to pay you. Now, sometimes there it gets a little bit more nuanced. It could be 30 days from when you put the stuff on the boat mm-hmm. or on the airplane. It could be 30 days from when it's received in the warehouse, which, okay, that already – 
if if it's 30 days from when it's received in the warehouse and like the warehouse itself is backed up because people are calling off because of COVID or like something I know a lot of my friends who are still in the industry in different areas are experiencing is that they're really shorthanded at customs at all the ports because, you know, people are sick. So stuff is sitting in customs for like a month. Imagine if you had shipped that, you were waiting to get paid, and now you're going to get paid for another month after that. So that's already really problematic. But these these retailers are coming in and saying, hey, actually, uh, not only are, you know, we're going to change, we're going to pay you less. We're now going to say instead of 30 days to pay you, we have 90. Ross sent out a letter to all of their vendors just like, hey, guess what? Surprise. Our terms now are net 90. Fuck Ross and fuck Coles. They're part of the the, the pay up movement. Sorry. I don't know if, yeah. if we can curse. <laughs> we can curse. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I definitely could never shop at either of those places ever again. And reminder that we know that 80% of the garment workers are women. And mm-hmm. that just to like, for a reference point, like one of my professors made us watch the true cost in school about, you know, the factory fire and, you know, one of them. And it shows you the pollution that's going on in these companies, but also like the women are working so much, you know, they have their parents raising their children that they never get to see because they have to like slave away in these terrible conditions or they just, they can't, they have to take the little slivers that are being offered because that's Mm -hmm. the only way to lift themselves up. But it's like, you know, something's got to give. And I just, I wish that we could like rise up and (laughs) strike and, you know, unionize. Yeah. Yeah. No, I remember I worked with someone years ago. This was like very early in my career who was like, listen, I've been to Vietnam and those children who work in the factories, they're glad to have jobs. And I was like, yeah, because it's like their only option. It's like starve or work in this factory. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean it's okay. Do not try to ex- yeah, exactly. Do not say that that's okay. So one example, here's a retailer I've never talked about on the show as being a bad, an asshole, basically. <laughs> uh, American Eagle Outfitters. They imposed a, like, just across the board, 20% discount on certain categories of apparel that suppliers had already produced or were in the process of producing. And they're saying, like, okay, yeah, we're taking a deep discount on everything, but we're going to speed up the payments. But so it'll be fine. They'll just get paid faster. But the Workers' Rights Consortium that's doing just, like, so much work to really report on what's going on on the ground in the garment industry overseas. It's like they're they're like the source of all the best information. They said that it is, quote, virtually certain that affected suppliers were left considerably worse off than if American Eagle had paid its bills in the agreed amount on the agreed schedule. Like no matter how fast you pay them, if you're take, giving them a 20% discount, it's not working, right? So the results of all of this is just like a crazy horrible, just cruel squeeze on garment workers. We're talking mass unemployment with workers not getting their legally owed wages or severance. So not only do they have no work coming, they're owed a ton of money from back in like March, April, and May. Uh, Women are reporting that they're having housing insecurity because they can't pay their rent and they're being trafficked. Uh, Workers are skipping meals and becoming nutritionally deficient with some turning to suicide. And I saw some crazy figures about suicide in different countries and regions across the world that are focused on garment workers. And it was just, 
It's just like the full picture of all this is so much bigger than people just not getting paid. Do you know what I mean? It's they're disillusioned, these companies of of what was gonna what was coming before the pandemic happened of like, obviously, I don't want malls to disappear and stuff like that. But it's just like, you know, people buying online and brick and mortars not being the most profitable thing anymore. And just these, these people like in in the one episode, you were saying like, the men, the white men at the top disillusioned from how things are really working, like get out your abacus and and do everything by hand instead of on the computer. Now it's like, they're the same ones not not really taking the temperature of the world let alone our country and seeing that it's changing you have like so that's why like these companies just have to die these these fast mm-hmm. fashion ones and like if if 20 companies own all of the other companies that are making 90% of what's being sold like i don't want to be a part of that and and i don't care like they're not getting my money and and that's just the way it is. A lot of the times I feel like you have to start off great. Like Anna Ono started off great. They're green. You know, they they help the breast cancer community. Like if that's not in you from the beginning to like care, to have the empathy of your workers and the factory workers, like mm-hmm. if I mean, not it's not like every company needs to have a give back component, but it's like if you know, it's not too late. If these, if they want to change and they want to do better, they, they could survive, but you know, we just have to educate people because like the bad ones need to die. The companies. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I was thinking about this today. I got it like in my head and I was thinking like the entire industry needs to be like reset, like turn it off and turn it back on because everything about it is wrong. Like when I start to dig into every aspect of it, you know, a lot on Instagram last week, we were all talking a lot about how retail workers are sort of just treated as criminals by their employers, you know, and there's just this complete lack of value for human life and like just no empathy for the workers, like no consideration of them as people. And you know, we were talking about all this like obsession with like employee theft and loss prevention. And I was thinking about the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire, you know, where it was like the first and largest industrial accident in the United States. Something like that happened back in the early 1900s. And a bunch of women died in this fire. People saw them jumping from the building to their death. And the reason they couldn't get out of the building is that the doors were locked because they were afraid that the employees were either going to steal materials and garments or just like leave and mess around outside and try to like not work. Like such lack of consideration for human beings. And this goes back more than a hundred years. And I, I, it's been disgusting for a really, really long time. It's like, there is no simple cure, you know, like I, I just, uh And I like the more I was digging into where we are now in December in terms of garment workers overseas, and this was like all countries where stuff is is produced. You know, it was Asia, it was South America, it was Africa. Uh, To know that like we've essentially been in the era of COVID since you know, I I guess I would say March, right? So like nine months that there are still people starving to death because places that are turning mega profit and paying their shareholders couldn't pay for these orders. Like I know TJ Maxx, for example, has been paying dividends this year to shareholders. And yet 
their workers are starving. I know. I know. And those are people that might not have been starving before, Amanda. Nope. Like I, the, I, the pandemic they're using as a reason to, to, to not pay. And like, like you trying to get whatever from the factory cheaper and cheaper is, is not the only solution like that. That can't be their only move. Well, there's like, there's gotta be just a reset of like, what are the priorities? Because the priorities right now are turning as much profit as possible. It's not like if TJ Maxx, for example, paid for all those orders that they would go out of business that they like they have cash on hand to pay for all those orders and then some that's not what it is it's not like we either pay you or we close our doors forever it's not like that like when i was saying in the beginning with like small businesses and restaurants that's not what it is what it is is saying it's the stock market stock market exactly exactly <laughs> so what we're what these companies are saying is hey just fyi we think that's way more important than human life and like, why would you want to give your money to someone like that? That this disgusting. Um, yeah, I just want to say that a, a good example of people treating their employees like thieves, which I know you've talked about in a lot of different episodes that's happening like nowadays, and then you have it going as far back as the triangle shirtwaist fire is like Amazon, which, okay, I don't buy anything from Amazon, but I know for a fact that, you know, if you say that your package has been stolen, they'll give you a refund and you can, and you can get, you can get, yeah, another one sent out and get a refund. You can get over on them like that, but their employees, when they're, they give you like what, eight strikes, then you're fired or something like that. But if every time, if they clock in even a minute late, He's taken a whole hour from you. Like that's wage theft. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I could I could talk about Amazon for like three and, years straight. And of course, him not paying taxes. But if the you know if we just went with Warren's plan and just tax like tax the super rich, yeah, like yeah, it's a start. It, w- it would be a start. It would be a start. I have a lot more here I want to talk about in terms of just like some of the examples of what's going on right now because I feel like it's really important for us to drive this point home that like this is hurting people a lot more than you think. It's not just a couple missed paychecks, okay, or that someone can't go on vacation or have a birthday party. It's way bigger than that because these people were barely hanging on by thread before. Uh, A survey of garment workers that was done a couple weeks ago in India, 43% of them reported having no income in April, May because of all the canceled orders. Uh, 56% of those people who had no income in April, May continue to have no income in September and October as well. So we're looking at like, what is that? Like six months without any pay. And they don't, they don't have unemployment like we hear, do here in the United States and in other no. right? It's just like you either work and get money or that's, that's that, right? There's no savings cushion. No. They, they can't even get there. They, they can't because they don't make a living wage. 62% of respondents said that their income reduced compared to before lockdown. and this is so sad. 64% of them said that their consumption of lentils had decreased and 28% had re- reported that it had decreased a lot. 27% of them said that they sometimes went to bed without eating in September and October because they had been out of money for so long. And hunger is like a common theme here. The Workers' Rights Consortium also did a special report called Hunger in the Apparel Supply Chain. And they reported about all the brands and retailers that were most frequently cited by workers as being problematic in terms of pay. And that includes Adidas, the Children's Place, 
Express, Gap, H&M, JCPenney, Nike, PVH Corp, Gildan, who makes tons of blank t-shirts, by the way. And uh-huh. also Gildan is the new owner of American Apparel. <laughs> yes, you taught yeah. me that. Yes. And Walmart. Uh there, there were, Ooh, I mean, Walmart. this, this report had all kinds of stuff. I, it was like hard for me to pick what I was just going to say here, but there was a <laughs> garment worker who used to make clothes for Primark and Mango. They said mm. that eggs are a luxurious food now. Like one of the cheapest foods that's out there, right? Is lu- a luxury item for them. Quote, before the pandemic, I bought fruit for my child regularly, but after losing my job, I cannot even buy fish or meat. An egg is a luxurious food for us now. That worker was in Bangladesh. Another worker who was fired from a factory that produces for Kmart, Target, and Walmart said that she and her family have had to skip breakfast every day for the past two months. And I also read that garment workers in many countries have been going into debt in order to feed their families because, once again, some of them have not been paid for six months. And some of them didn't even get paid for the work they did in March because of canceled orders. That survey I mentioned earlier of workers in nine countries, 75% of them were borrowing money to feed their families. Like this is more than just some canceled clothes. This is a really big deal. This is a human rights issue. Yeah, these are people's lives. And it's really important to look at the label and see where it's coming from and (laughs) I know it's impossible to like cut out China, but them like my last their my last straw with them was learning about the Uyghur Muslims and oh. the fact that they're literally enslaving people. Mm-hmm. And and like you know Nike too with the child labor and it's just you know children's wears a lot of child labor gloves like you know it's up to the people that know better that maybe had to like work for this glamorous yet terrible industry to like learn these things but like we have to educate the people because you know if they care about human life they will start to care about these issues and it does feel overwhelming but a a lot of work has been done in the right direction already and we just have to build upon that and keep going and we just can't be like ignoramuses anymore we have to stop the fast fashion Thing. I mean, there's plenty of books like the books I, you know, overdressed or, you know, like cradle to cradle. Like there, there are highly intellectual concepts already in existence. It's not like we're starting from scratch here. Mm-hmm. We, we can change this. We have, it's a choice though. It is a choice. I think that's a really great, great point there that it is a choice. We have to choose as consumers to pressure these companies to no longer do this shit or just never get our money again. I mean, some of these companies, I'm going to be honest, I know they cannot turn things around the way they are right now. They would have to completely turn their company upside down. And I just don't think that's going to happen. Some of these brands have been around for, you know, 30, 40, 50, maybe even more years. You know, they have people at the top who do not care about this stuff at all. You know, the garment workers, I mean, like, the thing is, something that I've noticed in the industry is that the level of classism is so high, whether it's subconscious or otherwise, that you would think that people would be like, oh, man, I'm so worried about these garment workers. 
you know, they're starving. No, because it's like, well, they're just garment workers. That is literally what people are thinking. People don't realize how much time it takes to make like even a shirt or something that you might not think is that difficult, but it is. But the, you know, they're so fast at it because they're, you know, basically like enslaved and in this indentured lifestyle where they don't have a choice. Like, yeah, yeah. In America, we might not know how to sew, but like everyone else does in the global like context because they need to have these jobs. But I do want to acknowledge with the classes and what you said, like not everyone can afford to quit fast fashion, but like I, I might be in that group. Right. But I'm just choosing not to buy new stuff. Like I have no problem with thrifting everything, buying things secondhand. There's no shame in that game. Yeah. Or, or yeah. learning how to upcycle. I think that the possibilities are endless for that. There's so much that's already been made. Like, hey, how about they stop burning stuff? And like, <laughs> I know. I mean, I think can, the irony make- of the whole thing is that there's way more clothing in this world than we will ever all need to wear already. Yet we're still making more and more and not paying people for it. Like it's kind of insane. And it's all because we as a society are so hung up on this idea of trends. You know, like trends are created by the industry to sell us stuff. Trends are a marketing tool, okay? Trends are not a real thing. Like we talk about fashion trends, for the most part, it's not a it's not a real construct. You know what I mean? It's like how, how can it be if everyone's knocking each other off? Right, right, exactly, exactly. Also, so if it's like if we can, and and this is hard. You know, like I say, this is someone who's been in the industry. I mean, you talked about it earlier. How you have to have the look. You know, you have to be always looking the coolest, have the best clothes, the best style. You know. In, when you get into the more corporate environment, it's like the most expensive clothes, the, you know, the most grooming, you know, like it's, it's so over the top. You got to get the eyelash extensions, the manicure, some people are getting spray tans, weird wellness massage nonsense. It's like so, so ridiculous. But the reality is that like we need to break that habit and realize that like we don't need all that new stuff all the time. It doesn't make us happier at all. You know, it just makes us hungry for more. I think that secondhand is a great way to go. Obviously, for some people, that is more challenging than for others, like depending on your size, where you live, what you're into. You know, those are all challenges as well. But I I mean, I'm going to tell you, I when I got let go from my job and then the company turned a profit, <laughs> I was like, I said to the members of my family, I said, we will never give them another dime again for the rest of our lives. And that's where I am with all these pe- companies we're talking about right now. Like, you know, sorry, Adidas won't be buying any sneakers from you. You know, I mean, I wasn't planning on going shopping at Kohl's anyway, but I definitely wouldn't now. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us to tell other people why we're not shopping there too. Exactly. And then we all have to tell everyone else like, like the the work isn't over. And just like, it won't change. Like just like with one administration, like, we can't take our foot off the gas. Mm -mm, mm -mm. Question everything (laughs) all the time. Demand accountability. Um, Should we should we name some of the other ones a part of the pay up? Sure. Kohl's. Mm hmm. 
And they're even terrible to their employees here. Okay. They have a warehouse here in Baltimore and I know someone that works there. Um, you know, it that deals, deals, deals thing, like with the Coles cash, like, oh, like it's confusing I, on purpose. Yeah. Some people, I, I don't think I've ever been in a Coles, but I, I get that some people just can't stop buying that. It's the consumer thing. And part of us, it's like, when you feel sad, you want to feel loved. I get it. I get liking shopping, but you mm-hmm. can like secondhand now, you know, or Depop <laughs> or whatever. So, okay. The, the other ones are Top Shop. Not surprising. I think they just... They're in the like the UK version of bankruptcy. Um, oh, what what is the UK version of bankruptcy it's called? called? It's called like going into advisement or something like that. I probably don't have the right term. You know how you're to be like filed chapter eleven. It's got a different mm-hmm. name there, but it's the same kind yeah. of thing. It doesn't surprise me because when we talk about Topshop, Topshop has always been really interesting to me because it is one hundred percent fast fashion, right? It's kind of expensive for fast fashion. Like, you know, they must be making a crazy margin because the quality and fabric isn't there. And this hasn't been as relevant for the past few years, but I can tell you in past jobs, we would literally fly to London and go to Topshop and buy samples to copy. (laughs) Is Is Primark bad? Yeah. I mean, Primark has like $8 dresses. Yes, they are very bad. Yeah. Like, they're just they're just like the same as H&M another one is Kendall and Kylie's clothing brand which like how is anyone still even buying that like (laughs) they started that like 10 years ago but okay I didn't even know that was still around yes but it is and it's owned by global brands group honey and they've all been refusing to pay up on orders that their factories have already produced and they're never going to pay up because they're still ordering more stuff and even Mm -hmm. if they said they are they're just saying it's a, we'll leave them alone, but you know, we can't. Right. And so, you know, I think you bring up a really good point there that if they haven't paid up yet, they're not going to, because they're still ordering new stuff as we've just talked about. So, um, remake, you know, remake.world, uh, has been one of the organizations really leading the charge to get brands and retailers to pay up. And they've kind of pivoted a little bit because I think they realize this too. And so it's been a larger mission to get all of these retailers and brands to agree to, you know, basically paying a living wage and providing better conditions and job security and benefits and unionization and all these things, you know, going forward. And unsurprisingly, all the companies we've just talked about in this episode so far are not agreeing to that. So there there has to be more accountability. There is. And the accountability comes from us. It either comes from us as individuals uh, you know, demanding it from them with our with by not giving them our money and kind of harassing them, or it comes from us as individuals pushing the government to pass laws around this. Unfortunately, at the end of the day, companies only care about either the law or money, and that's that. We have to do both. I mean, if there's enough social pressure, then maybe we can like start some sort of global commission that regulates the fashion industry at least like as even if it's just like as a start like coming at it from like a green like save the planet perspective Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. we're not the industry that does the most pollution but it's still a lot yeah it's kind of shocking (laughs) and and it's like especially because so much of the clothes that are plastic like faux fur and polyester and it's like 
is it is it never going to be enough money? Because it's like, I don't see how we can ever get to a place to take all the plastic out of like the grocery stores, like food and stuff. But like, we can at least it's a start to stop with the clothes, stop polluting our bodies. I don't want to put on leggings that are coated with something that's going to give me cancer. It's just, you know, uh, we we can we can like I, I would like to see that one day of of the accountability of because it it really I'm an empath and I feel the pain of the people, the people that had to burn to death because they locked them in the factory. The I know. I, mean, I know. I, the, I, the, I the fact that they're getting away with it. Just they're not paying them. They're paying them less and less. And they're using the pandemic as an excuse. And like people are dying because of Corona, but they're dying also because they are starving to death. And even in our own countries, I mean, the food banks, the lines are so long, like they need our donations the most, but like, in other countries, it's even worse. There's even more hunger outside the U.S. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it is important to call out how much hunger there is in our country as well because, you know, the unemployment is so over the top and it's getting worse instead of better. Uh, a lot of people who are usually unemployed can get some sort of temporary seasonal work in November and December for the holidays. That's not happening this year. Um, you know, a lot of retail workers and warehouse workers are kind of either being overworked for very little pay or underworked for even less pay. They're being forced to put themselves in dangerous situations all the time, to sign agreements saying they won't sue if they get COVID or are sexually harassed or injured or anything. I mean, these companies are being rotten to workers all over the world. It's not just overseas. It's here as well. So now that we have talked about how depressing and terrible it all is, <laughs> I do feel hopeful that, you know, you you are part of this new generation of designers, you know, this new generation that's going to run the fashion industry of the future. You and your peers can turn this all upside down and make it better. How How do you see something like that happening? How do you see your part in that? Well, broadly, we need to come together. Um, in school, I noticed a kind of no, you know, I made a couple of friends in design school that I still talk to, but most of it was like, if you are good, then it's like your competition and you're not going to like develop lifelong friends from college like a lot of people and maybe other majors did in other colleges. I hadn't even thought of that, but that's really interesting to think about. I thought about it a lot while I was in school because other people make like friends for life and well at least I know all <laughs> mine were like legit and really cared about me um, right but even those like I've had to cut one or two of them off because I see how they're behaving in this pandemic and going on vacations and like, oh don't get me started <laughs> being anti-vaxxers about their kids so it's like I don't feel bad about cutting you out if you're an anti-vaxxer but and please wear your masks over your nose like that oh, you're basically not wearing a mask. I get into arguments with people every day in the store because the workers are afraid to call them out. But like, I will get in a fight uh, with you and I will tweet a picture of you not wearing your mask right to the newspapers and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> I will. Um, okay, sorry, sorry for the sidetrack. But I wanted to say that like, like, I have lots of hopes and dreams for me. But like, we all got to come together. Like, mm-hmm. I like, okay. I know other people have worked in restaurants that are in fashion and, and, and I think Mary said it too, that she still bartends, but I worked for hard rock and I was a transfer and um, they're very philanthropic and everything that I've done as 
been like that philanthropic tone, but you know, they're not perfect either. They have fast fashion that they sell in their stores, but their mottos always will stick with me. Okay. Take Mm -hmm. time to be kind. Okay. Love all, serve all, save the planet and all is one. Which it is. It's all connected. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and they were it is. started in 1971. So I I just like, I want to put it out there. You know, we can't take our feet off the gas. Like with, with feminism, no. with, with equal pay. What I see myself in is like, I'm I'm kind of avant-garde. I feel like I I am good at a lot of things. And that I feel like a lot of your guests have like this really great niche and they're super focused. So if, if I was going to pick a focus thing, it, it would be, I want to serve. I don't even like saying plus, but I like the, the term volup that I learned mm-hmm. from you guys here. Mm-hmm. Serve those people and being eco-friendly and sustainable. Um, mm-hmm. And, and, you know, equal pay and paying my people a living wage if I ever get to the point where it's not just me doing everything. But it, I've learned like from my mentor, Dana Donafrey of Anna Ona, that like every step of it can be like, like the packaging that she uses is all um, sustainable. And mm-hmm. even the hang tags and the little like the twine attachment i know you you have a thing about the safety pins <laughs> oh i hate the safety pins <laughs> i i don't know what the answer would be here you're going to surprise me either way do you think that a lot of people that you went to school with feel the same way um th- probably i'd i'd like to hope they were like woke more woke now but probably not like they just wanted mm-hmm. like the glamorous job claire said like a very important thing that sh- that her school drilled into them don't design for yourself like think about the customer and and i feel like a lot of people i went to school with just wanted to make what they wanted or just wanted like a job in like haute couture like no no one was thinking that they were like going to get a job working for target yeah i mean i think that's really that's really true too that everybody has like stars in their eyes when they're in school especially yeah. like being in Philly that everyone wants that job. That's like the biggest gig in town, just like mm-hmm. out here in Baltimore, it's under armor. Like I was never one of those people. And that like, that wasn't my ceiling, but what I started doing was thinking about in advance, my senior collection, mm-hmm. which my school broke into two classes. So you had one for like the prototypes and one for the final garments and so I started in advance collecting fabric from Dana's factory, which at the time she was still able to keep it all on shore and it was in Philly. Mm-hmm. And so I started collecting it then. And it's the name of the collection is called Fallout. And I really like to keep going with it. So what Fallout is, is the industry term for when a factory is cutting out your pattern Mm-hmm. you know the shape of the garments because there's a pat you know some people get confused like the pattern of the dress like yes floral is a pattern or or <laughs> houndstooth is a pattern but also the pattern is the blueprint of the mm-hmm. garment guys mm-hmm. just like if you, if you don't sew you definitely yeah. don't know that <laughs> just like the flat is like legit the blueprint in the tech pack of that's the measurements and the specs so we all know 
it's going to come out the way you designed mm-hmm. it. Okay. So fallout is what would be thrown away. The shapes of fabric that are not of the garment that you're sewing, that is getting thrown away in a landfill. So I collected that from the factory for two years and I got some beautiful like velvets, like this black woven kind of satiny fabric. I got amazing things. And so I was able to do this collection and literally the only thing I bought was some leather piping and some Swarovski crystal buttons. And, um, you know, I suggest that, you know, the people like click the little link in my bio, my Instagram, you can see real models wearing these things. They're they're, like, they really are beautiful velvets that I made these Hayori's with. And, um, you know, and to think that it would have been trash Mm -hmm. is crazy. And, um, I'll even put up like my boards, like my sketches and um, flats from that because you can really understand the concept of it, which I, as of now, that section only has the pictures, but I want people to see like the extra layer that's um, baked into it. So I'm going to explain it here. So the research that I did for Fallout was extensive. Um, everything I have created has been made with a concerted effort to have a philanthropic aspect and have been a thought of as a contribution to this world from an activist. Mm-hmm. Art. I love art. I, I mean, it's, it's amazing. It's fabulous. It can change minds. It can heal hearts and inspire mm-hmm. movements and the zeitgeist. And so the books that I used to do this research, I mentioned some earlier, but Cradle to Cradle, Remaking the Way We Make Things, which is a book by Michael, I can't even say, Brognar and William McDonough. So most products that we consume are cradle to grave. There's an end. They're, they want us to have to buy more stuff, okay? Mm-hmm, but Cradle mm-hmm. to Cradle is saying this has a life purpose, you know, just like with, if you think of it as like a high level, like with what Wes Gordon was doing, even though that's hot haute couture, I heard, I've heard him explain that like, he thinks of everything as like a lifetime piece, like an heirloom that one mother can pass down to her daughter. And, mm-hmm. and you know, everything needs to be like that, whether it's on the low end of the price point or haute couture. So the, the next book is also by them. It's called the upcycle beyond sustainability designing for abundance and zero waste fashion design, which is just using the the marker, making sure that there's not a bunch that's like going to create a lot of fallout in the first place is mm-hmm. the whole mm-hmm. concept of that. And that book is written by a um, a professor. I think he's at the the fancy British school, if I'm not mistaken. The fancy British school that neither you nor I can remember. Yes. So yeah, I got some velvet. I got some knits and. Um, also, oh, I got a bag of leather scraps Ooh. and made two purses. And um, yeah, so it was totally sustainable and made from what would have been in the landfill. And the way I approached it was I had to map out the piles of pieces by the shape. And I really let that speak to me and guide like it just it kind of just like came together, not like necessarily on its own, but it was a whole nother way of coming at it. Like, let's work with what we have the way it is. And like, I don't have to try to like stitch these pieces together to make the shape that I wanted. I'm going to use the shapes that they already are, are to do beautiful things on the dress form. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you've obviously were so thoughtful and strategic with this project. I mean, it's amazing. Like I, I hope that everybody is thinking this way going forward. Like, what do you see for yourself in the future? The people you went to school with, how can the, how can you take what you've done and change how things are done on a larger scale? Um, operating outside of the norms of collections and the producing like the seasons, mm-hmm. you know, with your podcast and what you're doing, like it is a movement, it's a community and I, I have hope. Um, so like before Corona, uh, I was going to just like start my own brand and, you know, had an idea and I was like, you know, even though I'm saving to move, like, even though I'm just going to put my own money into it anyway and just start doing it, like I need to actually like do <laughs> what I went to school for. You know, if people really like the fallout line concept, making them pieces either out of fabric that would have been in landfills, everyone should be able to get dressed and I don't want anyone to ever feel like they can't find clothes. So like, know that I'm here for you. Gabriella will help you. Even if you're like not in the same (laughs) state as me, we can FaceTime. We will get your measurements right. Like I will not give up. But you know, eventually I, if I can get to the place where I have the garments already made and not be made to measure, I would love that. And I would love to go like even beyond a size 40 because the small people have enough clothes and the the brands that don't want to sell it, like they can die. There's enough of them to go around. And yeah, I just, I hope everyone can get on board of <laughs> not buying fast fashion anymore. I think about this a lot and I feel like it's some people, not even some people, a lot of people don't know how just fucked up the whole industry is, right? So what it's our job to tell everyone who will listen to us so that we can get that word out there. I also think that there's a certain level of like, well, it's too hard to fix the injustice in the world, so I'm just going to ignore it. I'm going to put on these blinders. Imagine people you love not being able to wear clothing and like feel good just because companies don't want to do it. I I just – it's infuriating to me, you know? I know. I do have a lot of hope, okay? The brunch people was the perfect analogy because – it is never going to be normal again. I do have a loose plan uh, and f- hopes and dreams. So, you know, as an activist, I'm moving from a state that's blue. I live in Maryland, okay? I'm moving to a red state. But I hope to flip it blue eventually. <laughs> like, if Stacey Abrams can do it, like, it takes time. But, you know, I'm I'm willing to dedicate my life to this and to... See, I hope that the fashion industry changes. So... I'm thinking about it like this. So I learned from you that your podcast that the U.S. grows 20% mm-hmm. of the world's cotton already. So why can't we embrace that? I I think about all the people who started sewing the mask during pandemic. And it's not all people with existing businesses. It's real people, too. And people came back to a skill that they may have learned long ago, but picked it up again mm-hmm. to help the greater good. That's true. And that's amazing. And I... I think about all the people who watch Drag Race, and I'm sure a lot of them would would like to be able to sew proficiently. And same thing with people who like Project Runway. And then, like, touching on what we said before, like, all of the people who went to school for fashion design, and even if they didn't finish, like, a lot of people, like, have learned how to sew. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I think about that. All the people who have gotten either their associates or their BA in fashion design, now, you know, the fashion industry has laid a lot of people off, or even if they left the industry altogether, there is a place to start. So I feel like there's a lot of people who went to school to learn this and maybe felt like there wasn't a place for them. So they left to add to that, there's the people already working domestically here. There is a lot of people that, that can sew and, and we can start now. And it does need to be more regulated. Like everyone needs a living wage or don't do this. And the paying them by the piece nonsense oh, needs to end. That. The first time I learned about that, it just blew my mind. <laughs> like I was so upset. I hate it. Yeah. And there are places like the, that are doing like the New York school that um, Mary mentioned. The, that are that are already doing mm-hmm. this and and doing it with more than just like sewing like there's culinary programs too and it's a place to start like here in Baltimore there's open works um where they teach like sewing and embroidery like you have to pay like they have kids classes adult classes and they do community stuff but you have to take the intro class in order to have access to the machines and then you can just pay like a membership to be able to like use wherever you want so there's people that are going there because they just want to learn or there's people that are there because they're trying to start their business Mm-hmm. And so like there are people already teaching the skills and teaching the classes like that, like Mary. And I know onshore production won't be saved in one presidential administration, but I think there are already <laughs> enough people who have the skills to start, like I said, and enough that have an interest that can learn through trade programs, which will create jobs and we can revitalize the onshore garment production back up if we keep working at it. You know, why couldn't the percentage increase like 10 years from now and then increase even more the next 10 years? And, you know, I would like to see that go the other way and the industry that's onshore not disappear. Like as I'm taking my dying breath, I'd like to know, like I made a difference. So, but like in a previous episode, you know, you said that there used to be regulations that the U.S. laid out about how much like production needed to be happening in America that we couldn't have all this from outside places. So like, why can't we go back to that? You know, like we're going to have to put back the climate stuff that they rolled back and, you know, fight <laughs> Roe versus Wade. We got to fight for this too. So I know it won't all be solved with the Biden administration, but I do have hope. And there are ethical uh, examples of made in America stuff. Like there's made in Baltimore here, which is not just fashion. And they're actually a good nonprofit. I know that the U.S. government requires the majority of items, including garments that they have made for them, to be not only made in America by American companies, but that most of the materials need to be made in America, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And an example, <laughs> an example of, a, of a corporation that has been doing this is Cracker Barrel. No way. <laughs> also, also founded in 1971, okay? Okay. Um, as everyone who knows has ever been there to the Cracker Barrel, they have the country store where they sell mm-hmm. things, and you can shop before or after your dining experience. The great thing about what they sell in the store is that it's all made America, and not just the USA specifically, but in Tennessee, which is where the headquarters of the company is based. Wow. Everything that they sell is helping a small business in Tennessee. Like, we can freaking do this, people, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think about this a lot, obviously. And I think not only can we start making more clothes here, we're never going to make it all here, right? Because unfortunately, the 
economy as it exists globally kind of relies on a lot of this being made overseas. But what I do think needs to happen is 20 companies bring in 97% of the profits in the apparel industry. Why can't we have smaller companies? That's what we really need. And we need to break up these big conglomerates because once again, that messes up the balance of power too, right? The people who are sewing, who are running the factories, who are creating all of the ingredients for the garment, they don't have a leg to stand on when they realize that there are 20 companies out there. You know what I mean? But yeah, I think, you know, the apparel and slash fashion industry has not always been a bunch of conglomerates. It's been, you know, in the mid-century, it was a lot more regionalized and there were a lot more local department stores. Those department stores had their own brands. There were a lot more small businesses, boutiques. We in our lifetime have seen the rise of the mall and chain stores. And like, even I feel like as a kid, there were a lot more stores to choose from than there are now, even though they were all chains. And I think we need to go back, go back, go back, go back and yeah. read and think about smaller local garment companies. That's what it really needs to be. And I think the pandemic helped that. I think so too. I think people are realizing the power of buying locally. Yeah. I need to try stuff on. I mean, I cannot shop online. I can't. And so I, I really hope that, you know, brick and mortar doesn't ever disappear completely. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. So like, you know, shop small for someone where you can trace everything back to that they're paying their people a living wage. And then for the bigger companies, I mean, they're probably in that 20 companies that own that are selling 90 percent of what's out there. So don't buy new stuff from them until they change their ways. Yeah, we will. We will beat it into your head. (laughs) I mean, they're probably not going to change their ways. Spoiler. Yeah, Uh, I think they're all kind of terrible and. You know, especially when it's like a publicly traded company or a company that has a, like a lot of venture capital money, they're not thinking about people. And I don't know how they like undo what they've already built, but I do think that's why we sort of have to like put on our blinders and ignore them when we yeah. when we want clothing or shoes or anything else, and really go to these small people. And no bailouts for them. They've gotten uh, uh, they've gotten away with so much. Like, no, it's over, son. We we have to flip to the cradle to cradle mindset, and we have to boycott those terrible companies and stop buying new stuff. We can upcycle, secondhand, thrift, repurpose, made to measure. Like, so, like there are people like me that will make you the clothes from scratch. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, uh, but, you know, I do think that um, we can make them change at least like what they're doing as far as like polluting and stuff. I accept, I don't think that, I think the slower places to change will be performance and athletic wear and loungewear because mm-hmm. everyone wants to wear sweatpants and, Legging. you know, yeah. yeah, like how can we work out if we don't have this stuff that has to be coated in this terrible stuff, but we, we can make start with everything else that can change right away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, and I think I mean, activewear on the upside, they have the money to develop the technology and I think that's where the most innovation 
is happening right now. I mean, but it's not happening on a broad scale. And once again, it's not just about the materials. It's also about how you treat the workers. And I was reading a list today. I want to say it was by Remake. Maybe it was Clean Clothes Campaign. I can't remember which. Of the biggest greenwashing companies of 2020. And Adidas was one of them. I know. I mean, I was like, yeah, sounds right to me. I couldn't believe Nike wasn't on there actually. Uh, Because for all of their like, look, we made these sneakers that are all 100% post-consumer. You're like, yeah, but like, would you pay your workers? You're like, we know, we know that that's not. Yeah. I want to give some flowers to some smaller companies and and name those examples. But I just want to put a, a button on this by saying like, I think us doing this to the fashion industry is a very important first step in the right direction to combating climate change. Like mm-hmm. just how you said in the jeans episode, like all jeans need to be lasered. Like Levi's is doing a step in the right direction. And also like for those of you who don't know, like they invented the jeans, like it, it started with them and, and they're willing to make the change to at least go in that direction. Like, that's good news to me. Yes, yes. And they are actually on track to hit a lot of their goals. And their goals were really lofty. I have to give Levi's credit. They're not 100% there, obviously. Uh, no one is. Not, right, right. I would say no they're ahead of a lot. Uh, there's still not a lot of transparency into their factories. I mean, and that's not even 100% intentional on their part. It's just like there's so little transparency across the industry because of all the subcontracting and everything else. Unless you have someone who works for you literally sitting in those factories every day, you don't know what's going on, you know? Yeah. It's, it's complicated. And then just like, don't be tricked by the crap. Like tell you, your people in your life that like, just cause it's organic cotton, like it takes twice as much water. And then like, I want to mention like the vegan leather thing from episode 17, like Stella McCartney's vegan leather bags is like the first thing that I saw in that was saying that vegan leather so uh, like, like you've explained like it's rebranded pu polyurethane and even this is greenwashing because you see on the surface it's not good to harm an anim- animal by saying it's vegan but on the flip side you're like what is the pu doing to our planet it still has a negative impact on the environment and all we can do as fashion industry professionals is keep fighting and continue to educate the general population of woke people that are already like ready to make this change happen and tell them that this is going on it's our responsibility to inform them and that this is the tip of the iceberg obviously Mm -hmm. but act is in the word activism for a reason we have to act yeah, we have to act. If we're going to force positive change, we have to fight for our lives. The beauty industry, the fashion industry, the food chain, the oil industry, polluting the water and air. So like basically we have to all look at the world like we're Erin Brockovich and I recommend her book that tells us how to be responsible consumers and keep ourselves and the planet safe. It will it will open your mind. Um And so we must be doing offense and defense all the time against Mm -hmm. things that are poisonous, that are coming at us from every level, especially since companies only care about the bottom line, which is profits. Yeah. They aren't looking out for us. No, we have to look out for each other. So like the time is now to act. The system is broken. We have to start now. 
I feel like we already started thanks to Corona and we, we can't kick the can down the road anymore when it comes to climate change. And we have to force the big corporations to see that. I think the normal people already know this. And like, I see the industry somewhat acknowledging it's racist history, but I need us to force the fashion industry to change how it treats the planet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We can infuse our consumption with respect And I know it sounds crazy for me, a fashion designer, to be advocating for, like, not buying new stuff. (laughs) But we can only upcycle, repurpose, like, thrift secondhand only. We have to stop buying new crap and start saving the planet. And it's crazy to me that human beings just throw out their old clothes in the garbage. I know. I know. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, and once again, like, you know, it's about progress, not perfection. So how, how do you make that progress? You start thinking about it. You start making changes in your life. I think that about that a lot when I think about like how we in my household started to use less plastic in our day-to-day life. And it was like sort of one step at a time. It was like, okay, first we're going to deal with the cleaning products, right? Uh, and then next it was like, okay, now we're going to tackle all of the like soaps and shampoos and whatnot. And then, okay, now we have figured all of that out. Now we have to start thinking about food packaging a lot more. And so if you can do that with clothing, I mean, first off, I feel like it's a non-negotiable. If you can avoid getting giving your money to assholes, then you need to not give it to them, you know? On all levels, just not fashion assholes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All assholes yeah. in general. I mean, that is like step one, I think. And then step two is like, you know, extending the life of your clothes and breaking the habit of buying new stuff all the time and mending. And I mean, there's like so many steps down the road, you know, you inspired we- me to air dry. There <laughs> like, you go. I, I already air dry most of my stuff instead of the dryer, but like, I want to get to all of it. And I mean, I'll- I, I was going to do laundry today, but then it, it snowed just a little bit. So <laughs> this is going to be like the ultimate, the next few weeks as we get into true winter hair, going to be the ultimate challenge for me in terms of laundry. But I have been yeah. noticing that even today while it was snowing, all the Amish ladies still had all their laundry out. So the weather can't stand in the way. As long as it's not actively raining, I think you can line dry. Yeah. There there are also like I I mentioned the de- the designers working outside of like the constructs of the calendar with like collections and seasons. Like a lot of indigenous American fashion designers are actually doing this. So if you want to like dig into that, like the listeners go down the rabbit hole and there's so much to explore. And it's like, you're not only supporting a small business, but like these amazing indigenous works of art that you can wear on your body. That's great. Yeah. I love that idea. So like, just to explain what I did just a little more, like in 2016, it was my job to translate my mentor's vision, Dana Donafrey, translate her vision and inspiration. And so like what I designed and constructed was worn with Anna, Anna Ono Intimates, bra and panties and like, like loungewear stuff that she's like already selling. So like what I made was one-offs. Like, it's not like I have things that are being sold like on a website, you know, it was just for the show. So I did that and then helped with the fittings and the back of house on show day all four years as well. And what's great about this is that like the profits from the show for New York fashion week went to charity for all four years, not 40 cents on the dollar, all of it, you know? And, um, this, the CEO of Anna Ono is my mentor, Dana Donafrey. She's the best boss I've ever had. Um, she, so she makes 
lingerie, swimwear, and loungewear for breast cancer survivors because she was already a fashion designer who worked for like these high level, you know, companies when she was diagnosed. And at that time, there was a huge hole in the market. Like it was just all old lady bras, like all white. Like they basically, you know, weren't realized that people were getting cancer younger and younger and they're just giving them this old stuff and like telling them to go in the corner and die. Like it's just like terrible. So she made these things for these women to wear. And like, even if you don't have cancer, like I still wear the stuff. Like it's bralettes, it's like little to no boning. Like, or mm-hmm. none at all, or no underwire, because, like, like, when you have radiation, like, their skin's very sensitive, um, mm-hmm. you know, but she is a good example of, like, good bras and panties. So, um, yeah, like, I'm so proud and inspired of all of them, and all of her models are breast cancer survivors. So, we have been doing the size inclusivity thing before Savage X Fancy on the runway. Like, <laughs> like, you'll see it in the articles. Like, they definitely reported on it. I will say there's also I remember reading a couple of years ago about how Savage X Fenty is also like really exploitive and like kind of like I guess it's not really exploitive, it's predatory because they sign people up for these subscription plans in like a lot of vague language and they make it nearly impossible to cancel. Oh, well I'm glad I've never given them any of my money then. <laughs> I know, me too, me too. And I'm assuming None of that stuff is made ethically either. I'm just guessing. It's like fast fashion. It's just panties. That's disappointing. Okay. So all of the proceeds go back into breast cancer. And like this year's show, 2020, raised 100000 for metastatic breast cancer, which is stage four. And that's enough to fund a lab to keep it running for one year. That's amazing. So we've done this for the last four years in Uh a row. Thank you. So that's 400K that's been raised for breast cancer research. And so like the other moving parts to that show are Metaviver, which is a nonprofit, donate to them, Project Cancel End. And yeah, it was, I mentioned it was through Art Hearts and the location's always um, at this amazing church that's like an ancient synagogue called Angel Orenzant's Foundation. That's where Sarah Jessica Parker got married. Wow. But one in three women who are diagnosed with breast cancer will be metastatic and People are being diagnosed younger and younger. Mm -hmm. Yes, men and the trans community can get breast cancer too. I know you're a cancer survivor, Mm -hmm. um, even though it's not not breast cancer, but like all cancer is just so terrible. Um, So you're never too young to get it, no matter what kind of cancer it is. And so we have to combat pinkwashing and the nonprofit industrial complex. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. And listen to episode, it's like the first mini-sode and it's about cause marketing, which is like all this, it's like pink washing and fake fundraisers, like buy this thing and we donate the proceeds. It's, it's an, it's something that's near and dear to my heart because I find it really troubling and I think it leads to overconsumption. Yeah. Like just donate directly. You don't need the t-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need the t-shirt. You don't, you're not going to wear it. You're not going to wear it. So, um, (laughs) quickly, like I, mention how green like Anna Ono is too. She does like paper mailers and she kept it on shore as long as she could. But eventually when you grow to a certain point, like you have to move offshore. So like her factory in Colombia, it's like, it's all women. Like, like it's, it's really good. Um, so another brand is called Mason Soleil DC, which is based here in DC. They're a, a fair trade fashion brand that sources from all over the world. She has lots of handmade items and an awesome website. The workers all get a living wage. They're all female. Yes. They're all female too. 
it's affordable and yes, it's based in Washington, DC, and her the the owner founder is Lindsay Sims. So check that out. Cool. I'm actually looking at I'm looking at the site right now and they have things very affordable gifts and whatnot, like a whole range and they all look incredible. Yeah. And even if you can't afford to like buy stuff from these places, like sharing the the engagement mm-hmm. on social media helps. Totally, totally. Another one for vintage is this onshore brand that I recommend is at Shop Go-Go's. So okay. the owner and operator's name is Stacy. She's amazing. Um, she curates vintage pieces and accessories. She drives this bus. The whole store is a bus and it's filled with vintage and she'll go to farmer's markets and stuff. And um, she is totally down, even if you aren't in the state, to like curate things in your size and ship it to you. Cool. That's awesome. These these are some really great small businesses. Yeah. She does a cool grab bag thing too. And she'll do a lot of like Instagram lives um, so she can you can see. Um. And yeah, she's an Etsy as well. And you can book a private shopping experience on the bus so you can shop in peace without worrying about getting coronavirus. So yeah, I, I mentioned OpenWorks in Baltimore and they do sewing, embroidery, laser cutting, metalwork, woodwork. And yeah, they're they're a good makerspace. So, know. you know, it's Mary's fantasy come true. It, it's good to hear about the New York Sewing Center. Yeah, we need more of those. I still have this fantasy that that's going to happen because... I see how many people have gotten engaged in sewing during the pandemic, whether it was to make masks or just have something to do. And I would love for us to come out on the other side of this when we can all see each other in real life and start teaching people how to sew. I think I think that would be incredible. It doesn't need to be a big business or a big organization. It can be grassroots. Yeah. I'm committed in that fight to fight for like home ec and the arts programs in school, like you know, when I move to that red state, I'm going to, you know, hit up She Should Run. And I'm already a member of the League of Women Voters. I was registering people to vote. Like, um, I'm I am fine with committing to all these issues and really hoping I can see a change before I leave this earth. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with everyone? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> there... I I believe that there are two types of fashion consumers out there. There are the ones that will buy a new collection every season and get rid of their old stuff. And then there's the ones who their wardrobe is a continued evolution. And I know that's the kind I am and I can tell that's the kind you are, Amanda. So I feel like that most of the listeners of this podcast are like that as well. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. (laughs) (laughs) and um yeah i see plus slash volup as a social issue and that's where i'm gonna go with my business and even if i'm just a micro business right now i hope to get to the point where i can put graded pieces on my website that go beyond size 40 and i will you know hope to change it like one person at a time and um close this gap this whole like in the market it's just it's not right and like you said like they're leaving money on the table and um everyone deserves to feel good in their clothes especially if they're oversized 40 and can't find anything like i 
I want you to know you're like, you're not alone. And, and I will make you custom garments. I won't give up on you. And, and I will, you know, I just want to keep going with the zero waste fashion design. Like we can use the things that they're going to throw away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So yeah, we can. I, yeah, <laughs> I will go to town halls and preach that we need home ec and arts programs everywhere. Because yeah, if I wasn't immersed in the arts, then like I wouldn't have even realized I wanted to do fashion. Like, like Micah Young People Studio. My mom got grants for all of that because she was a single mom. So like she and she, so she never even had to like pay and, and like in the magnet school everything was just a gift and I've only sold one painting so <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe I can just like focus on the fashion and I feel like there's more to do there like in this pandemic world like who's really buying paintings but I just yeah I would love to just be able to be paid for my art and I'm not trying to make a huge profit I care more about helping people and like I I think it's like the Leo-ness of it all like we are so ethical and just really care like we're not we are fighting against the wrongs in the world like we cannot this injustice will not stand the aggression will not stand to quote the big lebowski (laughs) (laughs) yes (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much gabriella for taking a few hours to spend with me thank you for having me Thank you so much to Gabriella for taking the time to talk to me. You can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis, and I'll be sharing her long list of suggested reading and brands in the show notes. So please check them out. Her passion and her commitment to activism makes me feel just so optimistic about the future of fashion and everything else that comes along with it. A few weeks ago, I did a question thing in Instagram stories, and one question was, What's the deal with Costco? Is it a good place to work or not? And Kenzie reached out to me and told me it was an awesome place to work. So I gave her a call to hear more details. Introduce yourself to everyone because I'm going to put this in the episode. Okay. Um, My name is Kenzie. I am a ceramic artist who works at Costco. And I love working at Costco. It was supposed to be my side gig, but with covid that happened. Everyone picked up more hours, so I do find myself working there a little more often mm-hmm. than I wanted to, but it's okay because, you know, it's hours and it helps me pay my bills. Totally, totally. How long have you worked yep. there? I've been there just a year now. So I, they opened a new store nearby where I live in November of last year. Mm-hmm. And originally, I was trying to find a job for my ex, and he applied there. And I was like, <laughs> I think I'm just going to apply there, too. I got in. He didn't get in. <laughs> um, the rest is history. But um, for a while, like, where I worked before, I worked at a co-op, like a grocery store co-op. And they sold, like, you know, 90% food, 10% other, like, locally made items. And mm-hmm. I thought, like oh, this is a co-op, like, they have these values, this is a good place to work. And then eventually I was just like, this place kind of operates like a cult. <laughs> they tell you, like, there's really no other better place to work than here at the co-op. And then you realize, you're like, well, they won't reduce my hours. They, like, 
they say they have had like a sick time program where you could share because I never really use my sick time. So they had it said they had a program where you could like share with people who needed it. And I would try to do that. And then they just like be gatekeepers and be like, no, that person's used enough of everyone's sick time. Oh, my like, God. This kind of thing makes me so cool. angry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, what am I supposed to do with 80 hours of sick time that I'm not going to use? Like, I would rather have someone who needs it use it because you've already like, set it aside in your budget. <laughs> yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, I will say one of the hardest lessons I've learned in my life so far is that the companies that seem outwardly like they would be the best to work for or the businesses, you know, always end up yeah. like being really disappointing. <laughs> Right. Minimally. Like, minimally just disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At a minimum base. Yeah. So another thing too was like there wasn't a lot of upward mobility. Like they say they had upward mobility, like, oh, someone who's a dishwasher could be working as a manager and it was just the reality was like the position they hired you for, that's where they want you to stay. Totally. <laughs> I was totally. Like, uh, and yeah. Costco's the opposite. They'll like make rounds every couple months. Like, who wants to do the supervisor and training program here? It's like, um, possibly, but <laughs> like, there's just, you know, there's a lot of different, just different stuff to do, different stuff to learn. Like, it's encouraged to work in other departments and encouraged, like, safety is a huge thing. So, like, all of our safety and then like all of the, like diversity training, harassment training, that kind of stuff that happens every year. That's great. And it's and like the things like the harassment training, that kind of stuff, at least at our store, it's interactive where like there's a group of you, you're sitting with a manager and like, you know, they go through like I was a teacher too before I worked there, so it's kinda like like a lesson plan. <laughs> so mm-hmm, check for mm-hmm. understanding and stuff to make sure everyone like like no those comments are in the red and yellow zone we can't say that like why can't you say it like you know like it's just so like they do everything just to a t because they want to make sure everything just works uh-huh like, i mean that's, that's so amazing. nice so like what's a normal day there like so they hire mostly for part-time people because they realize a lot of it is grunt work and you can't most people realistically can't do that for eight hours. So everyone starts with like your five hour shift of I'm a morning merchandiser. So normally I would go, my shift starts at 5 a.m. But because of COVID, they open an hour earlier for the seniors now. So I start at four. Oh my God. And I've had that the, job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like for me, it's okay because like I'm kind of already up at that time. I don't know why. No matter how late I go to bed, I just wake up at like three. <laughs> like, oh, here we are. <laughs> <laughs> but we show up. I think they were one of the first companies to even like realize that COVID was going to be a huge issue. Like before, like uh, they caught it like a week before everything went crazy for retailers Mm -hmm. everywhere so they started screening us they started requiring us to wear a mask then they started requiring the customers to wear it like the next week but they provided you with one so i like in the morning i'll like buzz i get buzzed in i can get a new mask because i can't be trusted to like keep washing 
podcasts. <laughs> so I just get a fresh one every day, and then you go, you go down the little safety walk that they have marked. I don't know if every warehouse has it, but they don't want you to get run over, and they're very strict. They're like, no, you have to be in the safety zone. So you go down the little safety walk, you get screened. They, like, ask you a few questions. You can get your temperature taken, and then you go. And this is just my position for merchandising. It might be different when the store is already open for someone else, but I go around, and you have, like, your section, so... You will be foods or snacks or freezer or cooler or produce or hard lines or seasonal something. You go through, you make it look nice, and then you talk with one of your drivers, or they might already have, like, a plan, and they just start getting the items down from the steel for you to stock. Mm-hmm. So it's, like, five hours of, well, like, four-ish hours of, like, stocking and lifting, and it's not like that the whole time. A lot of it, for me, is, like, straightening things out, restacking, making sure, like, the dates are correct because you don't want, like, newer product going on top of slightly older mm-hmm. products. So just a lot of that, and then we have cleanup, and then um, if you're at, if you're full-time and you're scheduled for eight hours, those extra hours, they usually put you on front end, so it's not strenuous so you're like checking receipts at the door or you're helping out at the registers um i usually go back and work in the deli which is nice and cold (laughs) (laughs) and they're just like everything's so cut and dry there they give you the tools to um make the members happy you Mm know um their return policy is pretty lax. They give people the benefit of the doubt. So you don't really have to worry about someone exploding at you because like our motto is just like, just, you know, make it right. It's like, they're the members. We want them to shop here. We want them to come back. So, you know, they're usually something happened and we're just going to make it right for them. Right. right. That's always what it is. It's just like, Oh, something didn't work out. Oh, that's fine. You know, we'll take care of it. That's the way. I would hope it would be for a lot of places, but I know it's not. No, it's definitely um, not. Yeah. I think we're probably still one of the companies that still has hazard pay. Ah. Amazing. Yeah. And they don't, some places did it, like, for a set point. There's one other company I know of that's by us and that's Kowalski's or like a grocery chain and they had theirs go through a certain time and ours it's like every four weeks you'll find out if it's, if it's extended so I'm not sure if they're going to do something more permanent or what's going to happen but it's just kind of like every four weeks they'll announce like oh we're extending hazard pay you'll see the lump for that month's hours on this paycheck. That's amazing because I was looking yeah. to a story this morning on NPR talking about different grocery store and retail chains that were offering hazard pay. And it was like, they're getting $200 for like the whole year so far. Right. Yeah. And you know that a lot of these places, like where I, my old job at the co-op grocery store, I still have friends who work there and they did open book management. So you know, like, what we're spending, who our vendors are, like what's mm-hmm. coming in. And they knew those three days where everything just went batshit crazy and was like, oh, I can talk about that too. But like they made 
over a million dollars in three days, which was unheard of. Like, At the co-op? Yeah, and that's how much they make in, like, six weeks among their three stores, and they made that in three days. Because people were, like, like hoarding or whatever? Yeah, that sort of thing. And then I know that they also, like, they kind of had to band together and make it known in the, like, in our community that, like, hey, we're not getting hazard pay. We're not doing this. And then they bumped them up to hazard pay. And the kicker was a lot of the people there, even when they got bumped up to that extra $2, they still weren't at $15 an hour. So then they finally bumped that up. And I don't like, I know they're not doing too well, but I don't know if that's just because of COVID or if it's because they continue to mismanage because I'm not Mm -hmm. there anymore. But Costco's doing well, so we're already kind of understaffed now because everyone started getting sick, but I don't, Mm -hmm. like, this just started happening now. Up until then, I think I wanted to say out of the 200-something people we had, we only had six positive COVID cases. Wow. So we knew, like, okay, we're doing something right because we're not getting sick at work, but then, like, the folks I know at work who are getting sick are living with people who work in the medical, who either work in a nursing home or like we're in a medical position. Right. So it was kind of like, well, that's just how that worked. It wasn't for anything we were doing. You can only control so much, especially right now where it's like so crazy. My dad works as, a groundsman up at the golf course. They live like they live in a really rural area, but there's just like a golf course in the middle of it, so that's where he works. <laughs> but he, his friend, she worked the drink cart, and this is in Wisconsin where everything's just like super relaxed. Like they kept mm-hmm. their bars open, so everyone in Minnesota went over there, like maskless, partying in the bars all summer. It was just like. Uh. So he was out there and like his friend who he works with, she had to work the drink cart and she ended up testing positive and she called and she's like, you need to call, like you have all these people's numbers, you have their tee off times, you need to contact all these people. And they're just like, no. I was like, what? Like, I mean, I've been hearing like in many like retail situations, especially like they haven't. I, I don't know. Like, companies who have the resources to do better aren't. Like, I, I feel like a lot of people right. out to me with their sort of COVID horror stories lately, and it's it's really upsetting. It's, like, kind of like I feel like I would never shop at any of these companies again. But there'll be situations in which, like, hey, everyone in our management team at our store has tested positive. Uh, rather than closing the store, we're going to bring in a management team from another store. Like, why would you do that? Uh, How is that even legal? What? You know, and and so I, I, that's kind of the story I hear the most. Like, oh, we had a bunch of like really key employees in our store sick, so we're just bringing in some other ones instead of saying like, hey, maybe everyone should quarantine. When you work at these places, you already feel understaffed, and then when that happens, you're like, well, where were these people before when we were like, I know, I know, (laughs) where did they magically come from? I know, I know. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's it's crazy. I feel. When I think about, like, the pandemic, which obviously is, like, all the time, it's, like, unavoidable, my mind immediately goes to the people who work retail, and I think it's just because I worked retail for a long time, and 
I think about myself in that situation and how it would be impossible to keep your employees completely safe anyway. Like you're saying, like even at Costco, right. who is doing a way better job than anything else I'm hearing from anyone. Like you still can't help what, what people are going to get exposed to outside of work. And, right. you know, at least you guys ever have to deal. I mean, I guess you don't really deal with customers, right? Because you're kind of like behind the scenes. I guess it depends on what. So my favorite task outside of what I already do in the morning, if I get asked to stay that extra eight hours, I always get asked to, I ask them specifically put me on carts because no one requests that and you're just outside. Mm-hmm. So That's like, and then the people at the door are sanitizing the cart. So you're just like, no, oh, I'm just going to be pushing around these clean carts out in the open and everyone thinks I'm just having a terrible time out here, but I'm just getting paid to exercise. I know. And outside, <laughs> I mean, I when you started talking about that. I was like, yeah, that's like getting paid to work out. You know, that's like it my is. favorite kind of job. That's what I tell everyone when they're like, they should really get you one of those machines like they have at Target. I was like, nah. This is yeah. more fun. Plus, I think that's like how they say, like, save that kind of money. Like, yeah. I wrote it on my list here. Like, how how are they so cheap, but how do they pay so well the memberships? So, mm-hmm. you, know, you already have, like, that money coming in. So, they're already able to just, I think it was in the billions, but with that, it's like they already have their employees covered. They have the insurance covered. They have, you know. That's amazing. It's good. Now, they just have to worry about selling what they have, which I thought was really cool. Do you have a lot of problems with customers, like, not wearing masks? I mean, I haven't seen – I will say at the Costco here, I even see people having the masks over their noses, which feels like a miracle because out where I live, people don't seem to get the, the nose thing at all. Like, no. everybody you know, at least for me, around. I talk so – like, I don't know if it's the way my face is shaped, but it always comes down, so I'm always, like, pulling it up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, Like, too. I hope people don't think I'm one of those people, but it just <laughs> happens. And, like, and I just, like – I don't know. I'm like, should I touch my face? Should I, like, do the weird thing where I'm, like, muzzling my shoulder? Like, just mm. – <laughs> I think we just – changed like I didn't even know they were making an exception for people who had a medical condition but they just hung the signs on the door last month that were like now we do require everyone to wear a mask or face shield no matter what everyone except for I think the only exception was like children under two that makes sense and we didn't I didn't think we had any issues with like any blow-ups where people are like, I'm not wearing a mask. But we have had people who go in with their mask and then take it off after they enter. And then you see them walking around the store. And it's like kind of a weird thing because like, unless you're looking for it, you're not going to notice it. But in that case, then you're just supposed to get a manager or supervisor on the radio because they get paid the big bucks. <laughs> they got a call <laughs> to talk to them or something. Yeah. yeah. Or, otherwise, what we would, if someone was coming in without one, like we have the little blue ones there at the door. So we could say, oh, you forgot your mask. Here mm-hmm. you go. And then like try to avoid the meh conflict. So that, <laughs> yeah. that's worked. I think the only weird thing I saw was this one guy a couple of weeks ago. He's like, oh, I'll just be a couple minutes. And he just like strode off. And we're like, um, Okay. 
<laughs> come back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was thinking it would be funny if someone gave you a hard time about wearing a mask, if you could just, like, blast an air horn at them. So right. everyone in the store would turn and look at them. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm just, no, I, I like air, air horns. Are really funny. I think they're really funny. <laughs> air horns. And we also, one of our, like, for cleanup, we have a couple of leaf blowers that we're supposed to, like, walk around with and blow all the really? dust out from under the pallets. Wow. But, like, for me, like, I've never... Like, I can only think of leaf blowers as, like, really mischievous. I can't yeah. think of them doing any, like, honest work. So you always <laughs> know, like, the people who, like, want to have the leaf blowers. It's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> you see them coming down the aisle. I'm like, oh, better run. And they also have, like, these two huge fans in the front. And that's where they decide to keep all the, like, poinsettias and stuff. So he'll be sweeping, 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 and then someone will turn on those huge fans and will just, like, blast all of your needles and points uh, everywhere. Yeah. You're just like, why? Why is everything big here? At Costco, it's just like, no, like, this is what you'll make. This is what you cap out at. And then once you cap out, like, you qualify for the bonus check or whatever that is. I haven't. You have to work there like 10,000 hours, but it's still like, it's nice to know and be like, okay, I know I'm going to get this raise around this time. Instead of just being like, do they think I'm valuable? Do I deserve a raise? Yeah, see, I hate that. I hate that. And I've worked places where whether or not you get a raise is like entirely subjective. It's not like here is exactly like you did your job. Here's your raise. It's like so much more complicated. And they also really value work-life balance. And since COVID started, I'm pretty sure, like, half of the married people in my warehouse are going through a divorce right now. And they're super understanding towards these people. And, like, I've known a few people who are just, like, either really struggling. I'm like, no, tell the manager because they don't want you to be here at work when your mind's, like, they want you to, like, be able to like face what you need to face in your life so that you can come back and continue, you know, That's whereas awesome. other places would just be like, well, just try and work through it. Costco. Like there is a guy, unfortunately he didn't make it through his 90 days, but um, we both got hired on at the same time. And his sister was killed in a car accident and they gave him three weeks off during his 90 days. And unfortunately wow. when he came back, he was unable to, clock in on time but like I thought that was pretty amazing that they were just like no like you haven't even been here that long like yeah I think that's amazing that is I mean that's huge to me yeah our general manager his name is John Allen and apparently he's like the best person you could have he's so positive he knows everyone by name he has to make sure he says hi to every single person he passes he like remembers my parents names and i'm like one of 200 people and it's just amazing like, oh i'm so happy that you're the general manager and not yeah. some crab apple <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, yeah amazing. i highly recommend if they're hiring and you i totally recommend working there i tell everyone like yes apply the one thing I will say is, like, during your 90 days, I do feel like they can they test a lot of people by giving them the less desirable tasks. 
Mm-hmm. If you just have it, like, even if you suck at it, if you have a good attitude and you're just like, you know, doing their best, your best, they recognize that. Like, there's, I guess maybe this might be a con too, but like, it's really hard to get fired once you reach, once <laughs> you get past that 90 day mark. Yeah. Like, yeah. There's people who I'm just like, oh my goodness. <laughs> just like, well, they're still here. Like, they're not bad people, but they have done some like, They've had some big accidents. Um, someone told me that they went all off, like they went to a music festival and they had come back the next day, like fresh from that trip. And they had like done some drugs at the music festival and they had an, like not an accident where anyone got hurt, but they like crunched something with the forklift <gasps> and they thought for sure that they would like they like anytime there's an accident you have to get drug tested so he was like i'm for sure done with and they were just like no like you're not like you're a good worker like we're just going to require you to go to this like attend this program and you have to like do this for two years and you'll still keep your job but don't let it happen again like i'm sure if something happened again they'd be like well no but yeah like, I mean that's amazing yeah and I was like what you're kidding he's like no like I finally like today marks that two-year mark so I don't have to be a part of that program anymore I was like oh wow that's amazing well thank you so much for talking to me I can't of wait course. to hear about how awesome Costco is you know yeah and I hope you might I hope you get a couple other Costco workers too because I'm I'm interested to hear like because the store layout can be like identical, you know, mm-hmm. but they can be like so differently run. And I know that like we have everything down to like a T. Like this is what Costco does. This is like your rules. This is your procedures. But I'm just interested to see how like does that play out at all the Costcos, or is there like a black hole Costco? Yeah, <laughs> I do wonder because there's got to be a bad apple out there, right? Right. So I want to hear about it if anybody has had a totally different Costco experience, please call the hotline. You need to know. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. Of course. Thank you so much. It was so nice to talk to Kenzie. And like she said, if you've worked at Costco and you've had a different experience or you have something to add to the conversation, please call the hotline. Also, the same goes if you had a terrible or an amazing experience working for another company. In addition to naming the bad companies, I want to shout out the good companies too. Now, on the subject of Costco, when we were talking about it on Instagram, someone, and I think it was Rita, aka the Panty Witch, reached out to mention that they had heard that Costco uses prison labor. So, of course, I had to look into that. Based on their 2020 statement on prison labor, Costco works with 11 facilities with legal prison labor. That's all that's remaining in their supply chain. And that means really vendors that they buy from are utilizing prison labor, not that Costco themselves is using prison labor, right? But, you know, when it comes to prison labor, buying from a vendor that uses it is, you know, being complicit in exploitive activities. So it's not okay with me. However, according to Costco, this could be a long quote, 
The involvement of prison labor has been extremely minimal and has mostly been in the form of work release arrangements. In these instances, prisoners are given the opportunity to work alongside non-prisoner citizens in independently owned facilities producing our items. Compliance with the law has been verified by third-party audit companies approved by Costco. And Costco also requires, and this is also from the same statement, quote, all gross wages paid to be comparable to any non-prisoners for the same type of work in the same geographic area, and any deductions from gross wages must be no more than allowed by law. Additionally, each person must voluntarily consent to work under the terms and conditions offered, including compensation. We felt these additional standards were important to further support the potential benefits of these programs, which include opportunities for compensation and restitution, helping with prisoners transition back into the community and providing an opportunity for employment after their release. However, reliably monitoring these additional standards has proven to be challenging due to the reduced transparency of prison systems in general. For this reason, we will begin to transition away from our limited use of legal prison labor. So overall, I feel okay about this since one, they aren't buying from vendors that actually use prisoners to manufacture goods for pennies an hour, like in the prison, right? And the work is voluntary and part of a work release program. And work release can actually be great. And I can say this coming from a family that has had more than one relative incarcerated over the years. And those relatives have said that work release was good for their mental health and it gave them an opportunity to start making money to cover legal bills, fines, restitution, and of course, also gave them an opportunity to have some employment arranged for when they were released. However, I would still love to see Costco move away from this altogether because, you know, there's only so much transparency that they're receiving from these suppliers, right? So I'm definitely going to be double-checking their 2020 report when it comes out, which I'm assuming will be soon, to see how that shift away from prison labor is going. And I will update you when I see it. All right. Well, that pretty much wraps things up for today. Please remember, your money is as powerful as your vote. It shouldn't be our job to be the conscience of these companies. But unfortunately, that's where we are. So I'm committed more than ever to forcing change in 2021. And this means asking the difficult questions of brands, even if it makes me feel like a troll sometimes, withholding my money from brands that treat workers like garbage, and that's any of their workers. And I'm going to give my money to brands that do care for their workers and see them as humans, not just as a means to an end. And also... I'm already brainstorming ways that I can seek legal policy changes through my elected officials. We can't give up. Yes, all of these problems seem all caps enormous. We can tackle them as a group. Let's work to grow this community into a movement in 2021. We can do this, guys. We can make all these things change. Thanks for listening to Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, as always, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. As a reminder, if you leave a review this month, I'll send you an anti-brunch society pin and membership card because I'm super appreciative of the time it takes to write a review. It takes me forever to write a review for anything because I way overthink it. So I appreciate you taking some time to do that for me. 
Thank you to everyone who has shared our content or recommended us on Instagram. I love seeing your shares, hearing your encouragement, answering your questions, and you know, getting suggestions from you. You're all the best, and you're what keeps me hard at work on Clothes Horse. As I say in every episode, if you ever want me to share a source for the information, the statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, reach out. Knowledge is power. I have a lot of things that could give you some more knowledge. (laughs) A lot of links that could give you more knowledge. And don't forget, if you have a question, an episode idea, or a story to share, please reach out. You can call the hotline at 717-925-7417. There's also the old-fashioned way via email at closedhorsepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Instagram at closedhorsepodcast. If you want to meet other Clothes Horse listeners, which of course you do because they're the best, join the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group and I'll share a link in the show notes. We've got some interesting stuff going on over there. If you can't get enough of the sound of my voice, which I can't blame you, please check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim and we talk about trends of all types and how they impact our lives. Trends are everywhere. If you think you're not trendy, guess what you are? We all are. This week, we're in the midst of a slumber party series, which will delight all of you girls of the 80s and 90s. And it will show you how, in that time, a lot of companies and advertisers realized, hey, tween girls, they've got money to spend. We need to take it from them. (laughs) Thanks to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support and for tracking down a Hello Kitty sewing machine for me. He's the best. Bye.